Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we have the global mobility and movement extraordinaire. Come join us on the show, Kelly Starrett. Now, if you don't know much about Kelly, you shortly will. Suffice to say, he leads the pack globally on the promotion and education of all things mobility, biomechanics, position, and the myriad roles mobilization plays in a healthy human. And whilst this is not a step-by-step instructional episode on how to specifically mobilize for your needs and lifestyle, it does act as a compelling argument for why mobilization should feature strongly in your life. We'll get into the specific roles of mobilization across performance, pain desensitization, and managing overall stress, as well as the types of mobilization and decongestion techniques that are available and how you might start to explore them. This episode is both introspective, informative, technical, and relatable. It's a must listen for most people, even though at times it might get a little geeky for some. Honestly, there's power in being your own body mechanic. I know that. I've gone through the process and it is liberating to have that control. It's so worth investing in this area of your life because it just keeps paying back. We cover a bunch, but what you'll learn about is the human environment mismatch, why the divide on the utility of mobilization, Kelly's movement vital signs, when and how to best approach soft tissue work, the why behind integrating mobilization work and practices into your life, and a deep dive into body pains and how to respond with body work and mobilization, and so much more. I honestly hope you love this episode as much as I did, and if you do, please do us a huge favor and support the show by giving it a five-star rating or review in your podcast app. So buckle in, pay close attention, and get clued up on why you should prioritize mobilization and your biomechanical health with the smart and charismatic Kelly Sturrett. Okay, guys. So the guy I've got on the mics today, I've been aware of and appreciated his work for a number of years. And this call interview opportunity actually came about after the kind introduction by Chris Duffin that we had on the show in episode 94. So let me tell you a little bit about this guy and see if you can guess who it is. So in my world, he's best known for being the author of the awesome book called Becoming a Supple Leopard. Hopefully that's a big enough clue in its own right. I've read this book cover to cover. It is brilliant. He's also the creator and star of the popular Mobility Wad YouTube video channel, which is now called The Ready State, where he's informative, practical, playful, and real. He's also well regarded as an author of four books and a leader in mobility and biomechanics. He's known for working with elite athletes across many disciplines as a coach and physiotherapist. And, and I think this comes through in spades, he clearly is all in on being a great dad and prioritizing family. But to top Top it all off, he also started the 21st CrossFit box in the world in San Francisco. He started something called Stand Up Kids, which has helped over 100,000 kids prioritize standing over sitting. And he also competed at a high level in various water sports, including white water rafting. Who is it? 
It is the one and only Kelly Starrett. Wow, man. Welcome on the show, Kelly. Could I have you just follow me around and give that bio to random strangers? That's so <laughs> kind. Thank you so much. It's it's a pleasure to be here. Oh, yeah. Pleasure's all my man. Did I did I do it justice? Is that intro sound? Oh, it is. The only thing is, um, anytime I don't just overtly mention that I'm married to the greatest woman partner of all time, our CEO, because I think I get too much credit for the work that uh, is done by our staff and by uh, and by my wife. So, you know, we'll add that in and, uh, you know, but the obsession, that's mine alone for sure. Oh, that's that's beautiful, man. I'm glad you've done that. So, so listen, man, I honestly have been a big fan of your work for ages as, uh, you, you know, you're authentic, you're caring, and I really think you're a value-add individual. The stuff you provide is like real knowledge. I've learned an absolute ton from you. Um, now, I don't know if everyone listening has heard of you. So we're going to backtrack a little bit just to set the scene. So maybe you can give us a, a sense of how you arrived at this point, you know, the point of you being a mobility and biomechanics guru. What led you to this path in as little or as long a time as you need to tell that story, Kelly? <laughs> well, I think, uh, you know, those of us who end up as physios, you, you know, it's rare that I meet someone who always hasn't had sort of a mini obsession with people, mini obsession with exercise and mini obsession with, you know, the therapeutic relationship. And, you know, I think I got my first job teaching complex motor skills to adults. When I was 14, I was teaching whitewater kayaking in Europe and where I grew up and, you know, fast forward to uh, a lifetime of, you know, being coached and very technical coaching, having really had the fortune of being exposed to really excellent teachership and movement coaching, right? That was the goal. Better technical coaching for better expression of sort of biomotor output. And then that was my whole life. Uh, the way we were obsessed with trying to train, the way, you know, there must be a better way. And we really started to get a glimpse early on when we started racing and competing at a high level that it mattered that we were in a club and a team. It mattered that we all felt safe and bonded. It mattered that we slept. It mattered that, you know, how we ate and how we warmed up and how we trained. All of those things, you know, made for a very, very successful sport. And I think, um, you know, I had a turning moment when I ended up having a really bad cervical spine injury and um, just an overuse brachial plexus traction injury, basically. And I had a really, really hot nerve root and my hand was tingly and I, I had symptoms for a long time, but everyone was like, oh, it's totally normal. It's fine. This is, this is typical. And then uh, that really, end, that suddenly ended my paddling career. I couldn't turn my head. My hand was weak. I couldn't grip a paddle. And I had just really, you know, large sort of sensory and motor deficits in my dominant hand. And when I started asking around, everyone's like, oh yeah, this, this was, this is normal. And I was like, what do you mean this is normal? You knew this was going to happen. Like, this was preventable <laughs> or somehow. So fast forward a little bit. Um, I'm back. I'm moving in San Francisco and I'm out um, surfing and uh, I've recovered. And, I'm, you know, it's a year and a half later or so. And uh, I have a moment of Satori and I realize I need to go to physio school because this is the way that I can – I need to understand my own experience and I need to – to be able to sort of consummate the things that I was interested in. My father is, a, is an osteopathic physician. He practices as a, basically as an allopathic doc. My mom's a psychologist. 
um, was a professor and I just suddenly saw where I needed to go. And I saw, and so I ended up going to physio school and in the first year of physio school, I was already Olympic lifting and riding my bike and, you know, and get, knew that there were some truths that I needed to understand. And I discovered CrossFit in my first year of physio school, in my first semester. And in the early CrossFit, CrossFit is certainly a, uh, can be a loaded word now, but in the early days, what I realized was that even in spite of my experience, I wasn't very versed in the language of gymnastics, in the language of kettlebells, in the language of Olympic lifting, even though I was Olympic lifting a little bit. I certainly wasn't good in running technique. And I suddenly realized that there was a gigantic gap between my own personal experience, paddling, competing at a high level on the national team, what I was learning in physio school, and trying to reconcile what we saw as complete or modern strength and conditioning, which was and really was, you know, you know, 17 years ago was in, in its nascent form. You know, was that mm. the internet was just starting. You know, YouTube was barely a thing. Um, it wasn't even a thing. You know, and um, so you know what we saw was that all of a sudden we had access to these groups and patterns, and you know, if if the heart of the scientific method is induction you know, through large pattern, you know, pattern recognition through large data sets. And then suddenly I had access to all the Olympic lifters, all the power lifters, all the kettlebellistas, all the gymnasts, all the runners. And they were all suddenly, we had all these coaches discussing and talking about these best modalities of training. And then while I was in physio school, I really struggled to reconcile, you know, what I was learning from pain theory, from understanding, you know, complex motor function, all the way up mode learning, all the way up with what we were actually doing in it. And I, in my second year of PT school, I started, um, I opened the gym. I took an extra student loan out and, uh, bought some rollers, you know, uh, went ahead and started this business while I was in grad school, which, you know, to, to my professor's uh, dismay was, you know, they were perplexed that I would take on additional burden in physio school, but I saw the truth of what I was learning around people were not exposed to movement sort of fluency. They weren't, we were, what we were being taught in physio school was a really excellent model. And I, I came from a school, which was an Australian Maitland based school um, tied to the world center uh, PNF at Kaiser Vallejo. So I had these really interesting masters who were, you know, real experts in neurologic rehab and really, really versed through the Kaiser system in this sort of, you know, Maitland approach to understanding musculoskeletal movement problems and tissue restriction. And, um, you know, trying to reconcile those two things, I start teaching. And all of a sudden, what I realized is that in when we get into movement as a formal movement language, is the formal expression of how people are moving through the environment. Squatting isn't just squatting. Hinging isn't just hinging, you know, and all of a sudden I could make, I could understand what was happening in people's bodies by watching them exercise. And as my, as my mother-in-law said, which I'm loathe to credit, but it's correct. She said, it makes the invisible visible. And so suddenly I was able to jump ahead in pattern recognition because I could tell and was testing that if someone moved this way and I saw that they a maybe didn't have the skill or the expression, but also they may not have the range of motion. 
and simultaneously, what I was finding was that I was helping athletes solve really complex motor problems and movement problems, expressions of power, expressions of wattage. And we saw that what I, my experience was no one at the time, zero, I'm sure people were, but it wasn't in my world. People were not mobilizing for position. You know, I actually had to call the California Physical Therapy Association and say, hey, can I, as a physio, can I use all of these things for wellness and population health? You know, that if someone, can I mobilize the T-spine or, or do a, you know, a, you know, uh, you know, a joint uh, mobilization or can I do a hip capsule, you know, quadrant for someone who just – is engaged in, you know, MMA or, or, or Olympic lifting. And, you know, it's like, is that part of, you know, and that language didn't really exist. We weren't thinking about improving people's position. The, the traditional physio model that we inherited was we get paid to get people functional enough to go back to the world. Mm-hmm. We get paid when people get and resolve their pain. And that had nothing to do with function. So we basically were leaving potentially a lot of opportunity on the table. And what I felt like was that the, the coach who was also a physio or the physio who also could speak Pilates or yoga well, suddenly could use their entire skill set and build a continuum of understanding dysfunction, restoring position, restoring mechanics, restoring sensitization, restore, you know, down-regulating how the brain was perceiving threat. We could integrate all these things. Plus, we were already experts in this biopsychosocial model because we had to talk about sleep and stress and belonging and hydration and nutrition because we were athletes. And so what I saw was this perfect moment of interface where we could help people desensitize, downregulate, de-threat, right? We could change their movement strategies, restore their God-given native you know, range of motion. And all of a sudden, what we saw was an uptick in performance. And so we stopped playing this game of pain, no pain. We started shifting the, the conversation of pain back to the coach and back to the athlete. You know, for a long time, we have treated pain as a medical problem, and pain is not a medical problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, Lorimore Mosley has said it best, you know, like we know that it, pain is not indicative of tissue damage. Pain is threat, and it's really important information, just like loss of range of motion, just like loss of force production, just like you know nervous system readiness or you know CNS tap test, whatever it is, it ends up being a lagging indicator about telling me something. And what we've seen is that there are not enough physios to manage this. And if we wait around for everyone to finally have some disability where they can no longer occupy their role in society – occupy their role in their family, occupy their role on their team, that's a problem. And what we found was that, man, we were really just giving lip service to helping people move better. And what we were saying is, well, it doesn't really matter at low speeds and low intensities. You can just, you know, leverage your human mechanics and, and you may or may not have a problem. And then simultaneously, we found ourselves at the intersection of the internet. And we found ourselves at the intersection of a fact of that we're seeing a real mismatch between the environment in which people find themselves and the environment in which the human being originally evolved. Mm. And so we are not sleeping. We don't eat whole foods. We are stress cases. The amount of you know depressant stimulant cycling going on, people are disconnected. And what we're finding is that the the bigger markers of these things are really 
are, are as large and ominous as climate change. There is a big uh, piece of research that came out in the New York Times recently about obesity in America, and it is out of control. And in the next 20 years, we'll see a population that is 60% obese. And that's not overweight. That's obese. Um, when you and I went to high school, chances of us being diabetic was one in 4,000. Now for my children, independent of socioeconomic status or race, the chances are there will be diabetic as one in four. Mm -hmm. And so what we're seeing is a real mismatch between environment and human being, right? And physios are arguing about uh, really ridiculous things. And we have an opportunity, I think, to do what we've always done to help people restore their function and roles in society, comma, we also have a chance to go in and work on population health because I don't think anyone is set up to be able to spend as much time with people work and performance and have a skill set that scales across cohorts, across age, across task, because the shoulder is the shoulder, you know, the back is the back. So, you know, here we are. And, um, I think we're, we're getting better. I think, um, you know, people are asking more of themselves and we're, uh, it, the conversation is complicated and we're going to, we're not going to catch everyone right away, but that's sort of where we are and, and how we came to understand the work that we're doing today. That's beautiful. I didn't think you'd be both thorough and as eloquent as that. I've I've got yeah. I've got an education in your background. So that's that's great. I mean, there's a couple of things you said there that really resonated with me. So I haven't had much exposure to PTs training me in the past, but actually one of the close friends of Adaptation, a guy called Bryn Jenkins, he he's a PT, but he was a PT in a chiropractor. So he had learnt his discipline for the most part, understanding the need to be part of the rehab discussion and understood that actually everyone's rehabbing. Everyone's, everyone's got some dysfunction and it's his role, not only to give you the tools to sweat, burn calories, build muscle, but it's his role for, to help you do it safely and identify dysfunction in your body. And then we had a, we had a chiropractor on uh, several months ago and he spoke about, you know, you know, nutrient um, delivery. To, to joints like such as your yeah. um your knee for example and being sedentary all day means that there's a lack of nutrients in and a lack of waste out because you're not moving around because there isn't a direct blood blood flow you need to move to get those nutrients in so you start piecing these things together and i think well, for one it sounds like you need you need to have empathy and you need to have, have understanding when people move and that seems to be quite absent in the general population pt world would you, and and well, it how, sounds like that's what you're talking to. And I know, that obviously, that's yeah. not the case for you, right? Do, do you see well, that generally? Yes. You know, what, what I see is that people are a, an expression of their environment. And so if no one has ever said, hey, we're not just walking because you should burn calories. We walk because we need that loading on your tissues, right? That's, you know, we need to decongest your tissues, right? I mean, we know that walking is one of the most powerful things we can do to reshape and remodel the brain. Like if you want to turn mm -hmm. on how the brain is, is primed to rewire itself, go for a quick walk. I mean, 100%. your brain is like, oh, we're walking fast. Things are going on here, right? We better pay attention. We have an opportunity to, to really change how the brain is rewiring itself. You create, you create an opportunity for the brain to be able to think differently. Plus we've got to load, we've got to circulate, 
you know, get lymph out through that, you know, that lymphatic system, which is muscular driven. And, you know, the model is, I mean, if you want ligaments and tendons and bones to look like ligaments, tendons and bones, you have to load them. I mean, that's Wolf's law. And what we're seeing is, um, you know, is it 10,000 steps, the magic number? No, maybe for an elderly population, maybe it's 6,000 steps. But what, what we fail to appreciate is that the brain, the human brain is the most sophisticated and complex structure in the known universe. So let's just start that. Let's, let's expand the brain into the central nervous system, right? So we have this, the most complicated, sophisticated structure in the known universe, which is perceiving change and perceiving threat and paying attention and allows us to, you know, make art and race cars. And it, it's an incredible machinery and it's based on a human being moving, right? That's, that's, how we used to move in the environment. We used to sleep on the ground, sit on the ground, toilet on the ground, cooked on the ground. We, we walked and we carried resources. We threw things. Very, very simple background things, right? And one of the things that I think is easy to forget about the complexity of the system is that the system is tightly coupled. It means that there are processes in the body that sometimes are hidden from us until they end up expressing themselves dysfunctionally. And it may be five years, maybe 10 years, it may be 20 years later, but that what looks like an outlier is just a normal expression of the system. So here's an example that most people can relate to. We, a lot of us are on some kind of heavy depressant stimulant cycling. We wake up, we have tea, we have our coffees, bulletproof coffee, you're jacked, five hour energy drink, right? And what we see is why am I needing all of that uplift? Like I love a cuppa. Don't get me wrong. I, I, I think coffee is, is proof of God's love and human intelligence. And then simultaneously, what we see is that people are underrested for whatever reason. LED lights don't go to bed, you know, can work late, um, you know, Netflix, all of the reasons, right? So we wake up a little tired. We lean on these things. We fall. We get a little sleepy at three or four. We have another little caffeine bump. But one of the things that's happened is that now I put that caffeine in my system and it's gonna be difficult for me to fall asleep when I have caffeine late. So what we say is, hey, you really try to be aware. Are you at 12 o'clock cutoff? Are you at two o'clock cutoff? Are you at four o'clock cutoff? And what we're trying to do is get people to prepare themselves to be able to fall asleep. But if I've got caffeine in the system and if I haven't moved my body enough during the day where I've actually um, accumulated enough what we call non-exercise activity, mm -hmm. enough fatigue, I'm actually not going to feel sleepy. So I have this combination of not being fatigued because I didn't move enough. And simultaneously, I put a bunch of these stimulants in my system all day long because that's how I felt foggy and they're easy access. So I have to hit the brakes. So I hit the brakes with THC. I hit the brakes with Ambien. Or maybe just, just hit the brakes with alcohol. And what we know is that a single, single drink of alcohol will radically affect the quality of your sleep. Well, how do we know? Subjectively and objectively, we've been able to measure this, right? With our partners at like Whoop, for example, or Fitbit. And what we see then is that, boy, we've got poor sleep density, poor sleep quality because we had caffeine on board. Then we put hit the brakes with one of these depressants. And then guess what? I had poor sleep. I wake up the next morning. And what we know is that if you are poorly slept and poorly rested, chances of you being injured go through the roof during your sport. And we figured that out in sport. We didn't figure that out because, you know, people are crashing their cars. It's difficult for us to see, but we have this beautiful marker of, of sports and performance, which can act as a laboratory. And what I'm trying to say here is that if I go a decade with that poor sleep stress, that's going to be a problem 
And one of the things that we're not doing a good job of is saying, hey, let's simplify. Did you get some steps in during the day? Did you take every chance you could to walk, right? Did you cut off your caffeine? You know, did you prep yourself so that you could fall asleep quickly and get the best sleep that's available to you in this moment? Because sometimes we travel, sometimes we have newborn kids, sometimes we have deadlines. So let's just control what we can control. And we haven't said that these are the things that make us human. And the reason we have to care about them is that if I want performance out of the people I'm working with, we have to talk about it. But if you have a persistent pain or chronic pain problem, and I see that you have highly disrupted sleep and poor sleep, it's really difficult for me to tell what's what. Mm. And I, I have a system that's super twitchy and starts to perceive threat at the, the, the easiest thing, right? And so now I'm sort of caught on this cycle where I, I'm not moving enough during the day. I'm, I'm sleepy. I'm groggy. I don't, feel, I don't feel like I'm a human being. Fast forward the fact that we're probably going to be 100 years old. If you've read any of Yuval Harari's book or looked at any of the anti-aging stuff, the chances of us being 100 is easy. Right now I have three women in my direct family who are 99, 100, and 102. Wow. So we are not playing this long game and instead we're arguing about, you know, should people be able to, you know, make themselves feel better? You know, do are Theraguns dangerous? Like you've got to be kidding me. You know, what are we talking about? <laughs> yeah, I love you, Val Harari's work, by the way. It's just, it's brilliant, isn't it? Hamadeus, it, it really just helps to frame the conversations that we should be having. And really that, hey, it's complicated. That's okay. It's going to take a minute to, to shift culture. You know, we have this thing happening right now where, I mean, the amount of pain and persistent pain, you know, is really... I think an indication of that, you know, we have bodies that just haven't been loaded. Like, like give me, give me, let me give you an example. Right now, there's an ACL epidemic in women's sports, particularly, and but in sports generally. And I, so, just on Monday, this last Monday, I was at the NFL. I was speaking, doing a keynote presentation to every strength conditioning coach in the NFL for two hours. I was there. I was the only speaker at their annual convention, and in that room are some of the the most revered and serious strength conditioning coaches in the United States. Right? They're really just some savages there. And I was having a conversation with uh, uh, Jerry Palmieri, who is, was a coach in the NFL for 30 years and really helped establish what it meant to be sort of a modern strength conditioning coach. And I said, hey, how many ACL injuries did you see in the 90s? How many, you know, or in the 80s? He's like, none. We did not see a single torn ACL. I was like, so in all of this football, all of this college, you didn't see any ACLs? He's like, nope. He's like, I saw my first one in 96, right, 92, something like that. You know, and he's like, it just didn't happen very often. And now we're seeing these ACL injuries through kids at freakish rates. And so is that is that just participation? Are we just – is it because – Women somehow have strange genetics that men – no, that's not true at all. What we're seeing – and in a conversation we had with a physician recently, um, Dr. Nick Denubli, who is American Council of Exercise. He's been on the Presidential Physical Fitness Council. He is, he is really legit. He said that he used to always hand start the screw, the, the turning of the, the drill. He'd hand drill the beginning and then have to pull out the – the industrial drill to get through the dense cortical bone when he would, when he would drill these holes for the ACL grafts. And now he sees kids who are bones are so soft 
that he hand turns the drill the entire thing. He doesn't even need the power tool. It's wow. just like, like soft coconut. And he's like, what is going on? And so what we're not appreciating is that this bone mineral density early on is going to dictate how and what happens your whole life. That you're, you know, I just saw a whole bunch of research that muscle mass and muscle, you know, muscle strength is really one of the best indicators and predictors of all cause mortality. So lack of muscle, guess what? When do you put that on? Because in your 50s and 60s, man, it is hard to put muscle on. It's harder. You can do it. But what we're seeing is as human beings, we're saying, hey, it's not important. Look at the chips. Look at the sodas. Look at the not activity. Look at the time on screens. Look at all of these complex things that we're doing, right, that are challenging the fundamental piece of the human being. And then on the other side, as a, as a profession, we're really benefiting not, not overtly, not because anyone is, is, is negligent or, or, you know, doing something wrong, but at some point we have to say, Hey, are we going to have a conversation and be part of a wellness structure? Or are we just going to keep playing catch up, which is, Hey, my knee hurts. Great. Here's three exercises. I got 20 minutes with you or 10 minutes with you mm-hmm. at the, at the, the clinic. And then hopefully you can desensitize yourself. So it seems to me that if we give people better tools and better solutions, they'll make better choices. I hear you. I hear you. And, and I agree. I think there is, it is, it is complex and multifaceted. Nutrition plays yeah. a role. Sleep plays a role. Society pressures play a role, but let's kind of get back to mobility. So uh, this is, this is quite a direct uh, question, but I just kind of wanted to kind of play this through in my mind. So when we talk about mobility work, right? So in the gym, whether it's foam rolling or some kind of release, there does seem to be two camps. It does seem to get a bit of a bad rep, especially in certain training circles. And I, I kind of wanted to understand from your perspective, why are people divided on the utility of using mobilization treatments, you know, whether it be pre-workout or what have you? Because, yeah, I'd say it is a divide. You go to certain people and say, I just don't bother doing anything. I just go straight in. My, my, warm, my warm-up is my mobility work. I don't need to do anything else. Talk to me about that. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, um, it's really great. So the first of all is, you know, when we're training, are we just, is the goal of training just to have a bigger engine and just to augment physiology, just to have third wave adaptations, second wave, first wave adaptations in the tissues, right? Mitochondrial density, muscle fiber. Is that, is that it? Or are we also teaching positions and training technique? Because if you go out into any sport in the world, position, technique, and shape matter, right? That's the definition of getting, you know, getting coaching, right? That, you know, your racket needs to be at this angle. Nope. Butt needs to be squeezed. Toes need to be pointed, right? This, you know, what we're seeing is we teach a lot of, spend a lot of time in all of sport teaching how to cross over, teaching how to run. So position clearly matters. So the, the fundamental question is how much range of motion do I need? Okay. So let's ask that. Well, we have, I mean, I don't know if everyone remembers physio school, but you had to remember and memorize normative ranges of motion for all of the joints, every single one of them. Right. So we're saying within a standard deviation, American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, American Academy of Family Practitioners, Norkin and White, all of the people have all agreed that the ankle should be able to do this that the hip should be able to do this. And that's within a standard deviation. That's not everyone is unique and special and a snowflake, right? 
that that's in spite of the length of your femur and the width of your pelvis, this is what the, how much range of motion you should have. And if we didn't have those things, we wouldn't be able to, you know, you know, say what's normal or not. What we'd say is, oh, you're out of pain. Keep going. Right. And I don't know why you tore your ACL or why that's a weak position or that tests weak, but, um, good luck. Instead, what we know is there are some things that a human should be able to do. So the question is in the gym, which is really potentially now has become a very recursive modern place where gym culture has substituted uh, movement culture, right? Where we're not playing, we're going to the gym and, and hoping that the gym accounts for 100% of our movement expression, which is for some people completely fine. But the reason we used to be in the gym in the first place was so that we could train for an actual sport. And the way we use the gym is for sports preparation where we can really isolate, simplify, teach techniques, slow down, build, you know, build capacity, build skills so that we can then go out and express those things on the pitch, in the field, in the pool, right? So the question is, is if I come into the gym and I lay down on a foam roller, is that really the best way to get prepared for a fight? Is that the best way to get prepared for snatching or sprinting? Because if you do that before a fight, you're going to get killed, right? So that's not a great use of your time. So if someone shows up at the gym and has an hour, we want to simultaneously help that per person prepare for exercise, warm up, dynamic warm up, movement, control, right? Getting, working on tons of technique, getting hot and sweaty, doing all those things. But if someone can't put their arms over their head, we should also be able to identify that these are what we call movement vital signs. And if everyone knows that 120 over 80 or resting heart rate 60 or you know temperature 97.8 now, right, is, is normative, why can't we agree that you should be able to squat all the way to the ground without falling over, mm -hmm. right? And so what we're seeing is people are really clever at compensation, at novel movement solutions based on their range of motion. So I don't care if you don't believe in foam rolling, the research is unequivocal about trigger points, about myofascial release, about fascia, right? About, about range of motion. It's, it's, you, it's unequivocal. And I'll point you to my favorite resource on the planet is by a physio named Brent Brookbush and the Brookbush Institute has done such a service for physical therapists and provi and providers by really doing deep research dives and 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 helping us understand the complexity of research instead of just you know cherry picking they've done just a beautiful job and more importantly what we know is we better have a set of tools that restores range of motion so if you're only ever working on you know, 30 seconds of form rolling, that's a poor use of, of rolling, right? You may not actually make any change, especially if you're a stiff person. So when I hear people say things like, Hey, you know, we don't believe it. I'm like, ah, I can totally understand because that may not be a severe enough tool to actually make change in your stiff athletes, right? In your professional athletes Two, is that the best use of your time prior to exercising three, what is your strategy for actually returning native and normative range of motion and capacity to a person. So it turns out more squatting just doesn't beget better squatting. It's an important piece, but what we see is that people continue to run like maniacs. And if you look at the running injury rates, you cannot honestly look me in the eye and say, 
running is safe. And you can't also say that, you know, more running just begets better running, right? So if you're going to make this case, you know, we think of it in terms of what we, a systems approach. So, you know, I'm a huge Thomas Myers fan. I believe in the power of fascia. I dated a girl in college who was a rolfer who went through rolfing school. I understood fascia in the 90s, right? I understood that. I had been rolfed in the 90s. Um, comes along Gil Headley, the Fascial Congress. And I'm like, wow, we better be thinking about fascia as a system we need to approach and address. Is this a muscular dynamic problem, right? Do we have just stiff muscles? Do we have poor length tension relationships? Do we have poor motor control at those end ranges? Those are all trainable and, and repeatable things. Is this a joint capsule problem? I mean, the, the joint capsules for my 300-pound offensive lineman believe it or not, get stiff, right? And what we're seeing is if you've done a ton of foam rolling, that may not ever change that joint capsule. I don't think that we should be surprised at that. Enter Brian Mulligan, enter all of the distraction techniques he was using with a belt, right? Add that to Maitland and suddenly we have some really excellent joint mobilization strategies. Then we always were saying, hey, there's got to be a movement component to this, right? There is technique and there is the expression. And, and what we always are shooting for is choosing positions and techniques that maintain the integrity of the capacity of the body. So if you're in a plank position, so we'll choose something everyone can do, plank, and you can't squeeze your butt, that plank is still valid. But you're choosing a position now that can't be loaded. Because if I push on your low back and it add an additional extension shear load to your spine, and you can't control that lumbar because you're in a position where you can't squeeze your butt to control it, then you've chosen a weaker shape and a weaker position. So once again, I'll ask you, what are we training for here? Just, you know, doing a whole bunch of work. Are we just dumb meat animals? Like, let's just get on a treadmill or just hook your feet to a bike and it doesn't matter. Like, do a bunch of work. Finally, after we get through the movement, so we have this sliding surface dysfunction or, or sliding surface system, we, you know, joint capsule system. And sliding surface counts for neurodynamics too, right? The movement system also accounts for breathing, right? That's part of the compensation. So we're in that movement strategy. Sliding surface, joint capsule, muscle dynamics, movement, and then I'm going to put an environment on there. And what we see is that people are in really not very great environments, and we have to be talking across those loads. So now look at foam rolling as a simple tool and apply that foam rolling across that, that rubric of, well, is that in changing my environment? Does it improve my movement, <laughs> right? Which one of those tissue systems am I trying to improve? And I'll tell you that 30 seconds of foam rolling is not a good use of your time. It would be better spent spinning on a bike or walking quickly around a track or doing some kind of ground flow or hip or working on a skill or picking up a barbell and starting to move slowly. So suddenly you're seeing that the ways that we know through sports are the best ways to train and prepare don't look like soft tissue work. So we put all this, try to put all the soft tissue work, for example, when people are going to bed and in the 10 minutes before they go to bed, we found that, Hey, that soft tissue work helps them to downregulate. It has a parasympathetic impact on the body. It helps them sleep faster and sleep deeper. We see that we had better adherence to doing some soft tissue work. And what we love is that we're conjoining the stress and load of the day with some kind of behavior that shifts loci of control back to the person. Boy, my back is stiff today. I sit down in front of the TV before I go to bed and I roll out my back and suddenly my back feels better. Like, are you telling me that that's not valid, that that's not important? Or are you telling me that you're worried that you're not gonna have a job because someone's gonna learn how to take care of their back or make themselves feel better? So 
we tend to organize mobilizations, which are all about ultimately the expression of position, right? We look at skill and skill transfer exercise. So when we divide mobility up, we're saying, hey, do you have the biomotor extensibility to be able to express this range of motion? And a lot of people don't. They are what we call stiff, right? Or, or they're protected for some reason or something's going on that's not allowing them to express this range of motion. And if you can't put your arms over your head and you end up in a banana back and you're a swimmer, that's going to be a problem, right? It's going to show up on your downward dog. You know, then we also say, hey, look, there's some technique here and some movement skill and getting the spine into its best organized position that's available to it, right? Being able to cr- breathe and create the right amount of stiffness to be able to flex and extend and rotate and do all the things the spine is supposed to be able to do. That, th- that, those are very much skills that we can hopefully teach in the environment or expose people, but sometimes we have to formally teach some of these skills. So suddenly now, what you're seeing is that when we mobilize, we're either mobilizing because we want to improve position, which is why I, a lot of people go to see a physio, right? We were mobilizing to desensitize a painful thing. So if you're telling me I come in and my knee hurts, but I can roll around for five minutes and make my knee not hurt so I can move again and you have a problem with that, find a different gym, right? And then third is that we want to help people enhance their adaptation by – Right, managing down regulation by by working on recovery by by improving blood flow and breaking tone and restoring sliding surfaces, and that is why people still get massages. If you go to Peter Sullivan's website, his business, you'll see that they offer massage at his PT clinic. Is there you telling me that there's no utility in a person putting their hands on another person making them feel better? Is that an incomplete process? Does a person need to load and move and be loved and also strength train and yes but you know we have lost our minds about where we should be putting these things in so to that person who says it's not valuable i'm like great well how are you solving these problems and if you have a different set of solutions i'm all in i think that's very thorough (laughs) very technical (laughs) hopefully people are keeping with us um but i agree i agree i think the the layman response is mobility work such as rolling around on a foam roller you know on this on your side leg excruciating pain for just a couple of minutes isn't particularly productive ahead of you squatting right and i I agree i agree i think that kind of work ahead of moving isn't particularly productive however i'll give you my example um you know i i see various people and they say to me like generally steve you've got got a bit of a stiff thoracic um, and your posture when you relax kind of expresses that. We can see just a little kind of rounding in your back. But when you're in, when you're aware of it, you fix it. Uh, and they'll do some tests on rotation and just my overhead is fine, generally speaking. But there's, it's definitely not fantastic. So I've been advised, you know, do do thoracic mobility stuff, uh, whether it be on like a foam roller or on a ball and stuff like that, and do rotations. And you know what? In the moment, it kind of feels kind of good. You got you pop a little bit, things click, things move around. You kind of feel okay. I'm ready to you know use. I'm, I'm ready to military press, for example. But I feel I need to do that all the time, like every day. Like every day I go in the gym, I do that for a couple of minutes. And part of me thinks, okay, I, I feel the immediate utility in doing some of that because I feel like a little bit more nimble, a little bit more mobile with my back. But it's all the time, so. Are we are we actually making progress? And I think I think maybe that's the argument with mobility work is are you making progress towards a point where you don't need to do it anymore? 
How do you ask that? So, if, uh, I, so I work with a lot of elite athletes. Um, so cyclists, so cyclists end up with stiff, short hips, right? Just they're cyclists. Look at the, look at the waters they're creating in this position where they're not really stabilizing the hip. So if I have to, the cyclist has to continue to open up her hips in order to have normative range of motion or not compensate, not have the knee wobble, then you're like, well, it doesn't fix it. Well, I'm like, well, what were you doing? So let's look in the environment again, right? So if you're, if you're not moving, if you don't put your arms over your head, but for two seconds, you know, for the, the end of the range of motion twice a week for, you know, so you're spending less than a minute with your arms over your head during the week. And then you sit in front of a computer and you don't breathe and actually move those thoracic spine rib tissues when you're breathing. Then suddenly what you see is you have an expression of the system. The system is like, well, we don't use that space. We can get stiff or I put a heavy barbell on my back all the time and that loading creates stiffness in that system. So for posture, for example, posture is a snapshot of who you are. It's a default. It's a learned behavior. So cueing posture is really just a fool's errand. It, it doesn't – I mean you can put a you know widget on there and get a buzz. And, but until we load you and until your body knows how to come to this resting position, we won't change posture. I, I can tell my daughter, my 14-year-old water polo swimming teenager to you know not slouch but – when we put her in kickboxing, suddenly her posture has changed. Mm-hmm. And so posture is really just position of the spine. It's a, a reference position. So what you're seeing is, hey, I'm stiff here, and I wonder if that's habitus, or I also wonder if you're missing internal rotation in your shoulders. So what we keep talking about around the spine, for example, is that somehow the spine isn't also directly connected to your hips and shoulders, right? So somehow imagine if you're missing all of your hip flexion you can't bring your knee to your chest and your spine reverses every time you squat or go to pick up there's going to be a whole bunch of competing forces trying to limit that flexion those things over time may become problem they may just you you can't express range of motion it may never be about pain or maybe it's about pain so what we're seeing is it's not really a back problem at all it's a hip problem and if you may have neck problem or T-spine problem, it may not be a T-spine problem at all. It may be you don't know actually breathe back there ever. You don't have normative range of motion through your shoulders and you're asking your T-spine to do all this work or you actually sit slumped all the time. And so you're not in a position. You're basically just learning how to hang on the meat for lack of a better phrase. And so you're in this kind of thoracic flexed head forward position for most of your day. And I mean most of your day. If you're sitting, chances are you have some flexion. And that is not a dangerous position. But for me, it's a worrisome position if that shape is removing movement possibility. Mm. If you suddenly can't take a full breath and you've lost your VO2 max, your VO2 max is suffering because the canister is not flexible and and doesn't have you know the ability for excursion right then you know it doesn't have pliability it's springy springiness as the russians call it then i'm like hey you're making some choices that are going to lose in your position right and you're going to have to touch these things because that's your special you know your special mix of how to improve your shape otherwise just use a landmine press or just don't ever press overhead or don't put your arms over your head it's fine you have that right but 
understand, I agree that if you're having to do something over and over and over, you either are engaged in a high level sport that's costing that. And this is the, these are some of the positions and, and let's look at these, at these mobilizations, the same way we look at, um, you know, pressing the barbell overhead. So did you press the barbell over your head once in military press and you got strong and you never had to do it again? Mm -mm. So you had to do it a lot. That's what you're saying. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> what we look at is mobilizations are position transfer exercises. So they're just focused position transfer exercises. That's why we do a ton of breathing in those positions. We do a ton of end range isometrics, but ultimately it's about improving the position. So we have two choices in the gym. I can either do a skill transfer exercise, right? I want to improve a skill by doing another skill, or I can do a position transfer exercise, which is what we call mobilizations. And so chances are, you know, the first time you squatted, you probably had to squat again and again and again and again and again to see the changes and to improve the technique and to rewire how your brain valued that position and what your resting habitus was. You know, I have, I have, when I sit, you know, my spine is in a pretty good position. And I mean that by defining that I can rotate really far. I can maintain big breaths. I can have my abs turn on. I've chosen a position of my spine and resting that really maintains and keeps the integrity of the, of my function, of my motor function, right? The biomotor output. So ultimately, you know, if that, that's what we're saying is posture, again, you know, when you have your forward head and neck and rounded T-spine and then you create some, you know, jaw dysfunction, you're grinding your teeth at night, those things are connected, right? If you can't put your arms over your head because you're in a flexed forward position, those things are connected and they should not be, we should not be having a conversation of, don't do this because it causes pain. We should be, which is the chief narrative in physical therapy. But instead, what we should be saying is, don't do this because it reduces your ability to move freely, which you may or may not want as a human being later on in your life. Yeah, I like that. And I think, to be honest, you, you know, reflecting on, on my life, um, I have a sedentary job, um, and I have, I have an office-based job, and I'm by my desk for large swaths of the day. And, yeah, that's and, okay. That's and that's and that's and how had, you're paying your rent. Exactly. And you know, I've I've had others say exactly the same things. Like, well, Steve, you know, the reason you need to have these corrections done, the reason you need to do this work isn't because uh they're fundamentally flawed exercises or or, or mobilizations. It's the fact that you chronically uh have positions that are kind of like sticking you you sticking you into this for you know this kind of thoracic um roundedness and and to correct that we need you to get into the gym move weight around and you know flex that spine and unfortunately for as long as you have a job the way you do and you don't prioritize your position as much as you do you're gonna have to keep doing this so that's the response i've had and it sounds to be congruent with what you've said um i guess there's there's just a part of most of us who go do you know what when is there going to be the permanent permanent um transference or the 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 permanent change where I no longer have to do this thing that yeah. I kind of have to do in the gym yeah, and, quite often to move around like better. That's reasonable, right? That's a reasonable expression. But you know, let's think of the, your range of motion like a credit score. It's just an expression of who you are right now. And all you need to do is jump on an airplane, you know, sit on an airplane for 16 hours, and then let's test your range of motion when you get off that airplane. How are you going to do? You're going to kill it. As in, you won't be able to do anything. Right? Mm -hmm. You're going to be a stiff, stiff, you know, you know, demi person. And so what we, what we think is, Hey, this is a dynamic, dynamic system. So 
dude, tendons and ligaments, if you don't load them, what happens to them? They downregulate. They start to they start to become weaker, right? Let's look at muscle tissue. If you don't load the muscle tissue, what happens? You know, so why are we looking at range of motion, which is just a different kind of movement, as any different than any other of the physiologic aspects of your body? Mm. I went in the sun. My vitamin D is up. I went inside for a month. My vitamin D is down. I, I thought I solved that vitamin D problem. You know, I have to <laughs> so eat true. vegetables all the time. It turns out I slept last month. What's the big deal? So why are we looking at this behavior and movement is just a behavior? Your brain thinks movement is the same behavior as any other thing. That's why we can do mental practice in our brains, right? You can practice that free throw and be just as good as practicing the free throw. You know, that's why we do mental rehearsal because as soon as we begin to look at movement as a behavior and a, and a strain, a trusted behavior, then we start to really understand the greater conversation. And it turns out behavior change is tricky, right? Why is it that my gymnasts and my ballet dancers have pretty righteous positioning all the time? Because they have trained and practiced and loaded those positions. Mm -hmm. Look at my yogis. They don't have to think about getting their spine into a, into a reference position that handles load very well. They practice those shapes. Right, let's let's uh, let's pivot a little bit. I think it's similar, but um, I want to talk a little bit about pain management or re or reduction. So, obviously, Fantastic. lots of you know lots of people will go to mobility practices or, or mobilizations, whether it be um, you know myofascial release, whether it be foam rolling, whether it be kind of movements generally, physio movements. They go to these, as you've said, to try and deal with some dysfunction, deal with some pain. How? should the layman the average person think about mobilization techniques generally as they try and be their own body mechanic as they're dealing with something right they've got a bit of pain and now obviously pain is subjective and there's many forms of it and there's many forms of acute injury as well as kind of biopsychosocial stuff but generally speaking someone's read your book um becoming a supple leopard they're starting to get familiar with you know the tools and practices they have they, they tweak something, they hurt themselves, they feel a little bit off. How do people think about using all these various techniques in how to yeah, manage so many or tools, reduce right? their pain? We were, my wife and I were in Seoul, um, Korea, uh, a few years ago, and we were in this very traditional part of Seoul, and there was this woman in her 80s, and she was standing next to a table piled high with horns and bones. And Julia's like, that's really weird. And I walked over and I was like, you know what these are? These are gua tools. These are scraping tools. Or as we say in the West, IASTM, instrumented assisted soft tissue mobilization techniques, right? And uh, here's a woman in Seoul who's 80 who's teaching people to do some self-modulation, change the input of the body by taking a bone and scraping it on their skin. So it turns out humans have probably been trying to do this for a long time. And these things are very safe. And it's not an accident that you try – when something is achy, you rub on it, right? That's what people do. You know, like mm -hmm. you, people rub their necks. They rub their heads. They rub their jaw. They rub their temple. They rub their backs. Like really what's going on though, there? Right? <laughs> well, does it? You know, so the, what's interesting here is first of all, what we want to recognize is that pain does not mean injury. It does not mean tissue injury. Right. It can it can mean a lot of things and a lot of things can affect your pain, as we talked about your stress, your previous beliefs of pain, your your you know, if you're if you want to set yourself up, just go ahead and binge on a ton of pizza and and drink as much beer as you can. And I guarantee you, you will be inflamed. Right. You'll be more likely to, to experience pain in that state than if you if you ate like a human being. 
right? And were well-rested and felt loved by your family. So one of the things that we want to recognize is, hey, it's okay that you're in pain. That's a normal experience of the human. It doesn't mean you're injured. It doesn't mean tissues are injured. But somehow your brain is perceiving something in your body as a threat. It's, it's an it's a early detection system that you should pay attention to this, right? So if you sit for a long time and your back starts to ache, what do you do? You change your position. All of a sudden your back stops aching, right? You move around. Been on your feet for a while. You get off your feet. Your feet feel better. So a lot of that, we're, we are you know, treating pain as a vital sign, and it is not a vital sign. That has gotten us into a lot of trouble. So the first thing we want to recognize for people is saying, hey, you know, this is a common experience. There are some tools that are very low-tech, very simple, or you can help your brain desensitize or help the tissue desensitize so your brain doesn't recognize this thought. And sometimes, as I've indicated in just that, you know, I change position, changing position is enough or changing movement is often enough to help people, help their brain think differently about how the tissue is being loaded or tissues being stressed or the information being sent from the tissues to the, to the body. And that may be joint, that might be fascia, that might be muscle, it doesn't matter. Ligament, tendon, right? All these innervations, right? The, the innervations in the fascia alone are, and the information in the fascia alone is mind-boggling, right? It's such a huge organ. So oftentimes when someone comes in with persistent pain or chronic pain, one of the first things we do is to say, hey, we see that you're not moving in the way consistent with what we know to be the best way to generate force and wattage and poundage and output. So let's go ahead. If we're going to change and change your technique, let's change and restore your technique back to positions that we know maintain the function and give you better positions and power, right? That, that's useful. And oftentimes, because pain and movement can be mapped in the same ways in the brain, when we change, we change some part of your movement, your brain suddenly is like, oh, that's a brand new movement pattern. And that pattern does not is not associated with any of the old pain expressions, right? So oftentimes just moving differently can change that, right? You've carried a backpack, suddenly you shift around, right? You know what you know what I'm talking about. Change of movement. Second, is one of the things we want people to understand is, boy, if you do a simple, some simple contract relax on the on the roller. So if, if my knee is achy and I go up to my quads, which is connected to my knee strangely via the quads, and I just find some aspect of my quads that is painful to compression, right? Stop there. Take a big breath in. We say take a four-second inhale. I want you to contract that musculature for four seconds into the roller, and then I want you to take an eight-second exhale. So our model, we've integrated breathing. We've integrated PNF. We've integrated the systems of down regulation. We've integrated ideas of you know, neurobiology. All of those things get integrated into this. So take a four-second inhale, four-second contract, eight-second exhale. And what are we doing there? That is an end-range isometric. That's all we're doing. We're just teaching the brain, hey, look, we can actually exercise here and change. We may be changing a tissue dynamic, but we're also doing an end-range isometric there. That's a four-second end-range isometric hold. Then when you relax slowly and exhale – because you're breathing out, your brain's like, oh, this is this isn't threat. That eight-second exhale is long. We may be able to desensitize that painful tissue. We may be able to change some dynamic of the mechanical system, right? Unload the mechanics. Sometimes you're just stiff, and we just change that stiffness. 
And sometimes we just improve blood flow or maybe we're changing microcirculation there. Maybe we're changing, you know, how the tissues are being perfused by hydration and by water and blood. It's probably working on all these different things together simultaneously. But suddenly I now have a very, very powerful tool to make myself feel better in the moment with a beer bottle, with a bottle of wine I can lay on, with a foam roller, with a lacrosse ball, right, with someone's foot. So here's an example. Juliet. My wife, Margaret, our director of training, who's my wife's best friend, and I just did this nine-day virtual bike race tour. So we are on the spin bikes. There are 14 one-hour sessions that you got to get done in nine days. And guess what happens to Juliet's knee? Her IT band starts to hurt at the end of these 14 days. Can you imagine that? 150 miles of bike intervals. Right where we're uh, sprinting and trying to stay out and riding the bike nine days in a row and her knee gets a little tight. That's that's so weird. So I'm like, hey, we should get an MRI. We should probably cut that thing off. <laughs> we should give you a cortisone shot. Like you shouldn't use it again. Just unload it. Don't ride the bike again. Right. This is you know. No. What do we do? I'm like, hey, I wonder what attaches to your IT band. Well, it turns out her hamstrings attached to her IT band. It turns out her quads attached to her IT band. So I had her lay on the ground. I pulled out my crutches. So I could support myself. And then while we were watching the debate, I just smashed, which is a technical term for myofascial mobilization with my foot. And I just got her tissues to relax. So I worked on the border of her quadriceps to IT band and hamstrings to IT band or just hamstrings. And guess what? Her pain went away. And it took me 10 minutes of doing some, some, you know, focused stepping on my wife's legs for lack of a better phrase, to change how her brain was perceiving that. Why? Because we may have, you know, altered the mechanics, altered the tension, had some non-threatening input in there. It doesn't matter what the mechanism is, but that is such a powerful tool for people to make themselves feel better. And you cannot dis- discount even just the power of loci of control where people are like, hey, I have pain. I know what to do about it. That belief effect is as powerful as as the catastrophe on the other side, where you start Googling knee cancer, knee rabies, knee venereal disease, right? That's what we have to be thinking. Yeah, no, I hear you. And you know what, we've, we've actually done that at home, you know, smashing by, by using a friend like me, standing on my, my wife's legs and stuff like that. And she's in excruciating pain as we go through it. And then there's that release eventually. You know, well, things start to And dissipate. check this out. It shouldn't hurt to, for compression. Normal tissues mm. are painless to compression. Right, normal tissues aren't stiff. They don't feel like beef jerky. You know, we just went to Thailand for uh, a couple of weeks over the uh, over the winter break and the new year. And my wife and I got a Thai massage every day for like 14 days. It's a lot of input to the body. But I had these 60, 65, 70 year old Thai women just reefing the crap out of me with their feet. And in the beginning, you know, I just come off of some training and I was like, my quads are super stiff. And at the end of 10 days, like they're just kind of mashing back and forth. If I put 10 pounds of pressure on your quadriceps, you might pass out and die. And that's because we don't have a culture and tradition of taking care of our tissues, right? Our bodies are such workhorses and can buffer tolerance for a long time, but we have become so precious. And one of the things we're trying to do in our mission is to say, hey, tissue health and tissue quality is part of the training experience. And we say, you know, being able to identify when you don't have access to these movement vital signs, when you begin to compensate, 
your training partner should be able to help you manage that, right? That that's part of the training experience, right? Is restoration of position the same way that you're, if you're out with a group of friends, we're always talking about technique. When I lift with my friends, we're coaching each other almost every set, every rep. I really like we did that. Hey, you lifted your toe up. Hey, I think you pushed a little early to could get more lats on. We're always in this constant feedback loop. Why don't we put position and tissue sensitization as part of that conversation? We teach this to nine-year-olds, nine and 10-year-olds know how to push on each other to make themselves feel better. Mm-hmm. This is crazy. No, no, I, I agree, man. Um, the question I had around around how to use mobilization for pain is, you know, the opposite question is when not to use these techniques to treat pain. I'll give you some examples. Uh, and then maybe you can like, you know, pull, pull on any one of these that takes your fancy. So I'll give you four, four examples. So, hey, you've got, you know, kind of lower trap pain it's just like an ache when you move your move your shoulder around a little bit maybe done some heavy heavy deadlifts the day before and it's just kind of spazzing out a bit it kind of hurts when you move your hand or you have lower back pain so like the lumbar is a bit stiff maybe again you deadlifted yesterday and it's kind of tweaked or it's it's sensitive it's maybe got doms maybe it hasn't but you're not sure do you touch it or you have a painful wrist, a painful wrist ligament. Maybe you overdone it on some bicep curls or you've been pushing too hard on some uh, pressing and now it's it's tender, it's sore, certain um, movements start to hurt. Or lastly, maybe you've got painful hips when, you know, you go into a deep squat and, you know, the front of your kind of hip flexors just really hurt as you get, in, get into that deep position. I, I look at all of these and I go, upper trap, lower back pain, wrist ligament, Pain, uh, sorry, um, painful wrist ligaments or painful hips. I look at those and I go, should they all be treated? Should they? Should I work on all of those? Or if I've injured myself, say the the risk, the the wrist thing going on, and it's like there's a ligament that's just really kind of like angry when you try and use your use your hands. Do you just leave that be, or do you get involved and start poking around? Well, the first thing is you you suggested that you can do too many bicep curls. So uh, let's correct that. That's impossible. Okay. No, no, no. So, let, yeah. Let, let, let me, let, let me re, let restate. And I'm restating from experience. So, I know, I know. I'm I've definitely, kidding. I've so, definitely messed up my, my wrist before. My well, wrist he, slash. Here's, here's uh, what's interesting. Forearm. You should feel better when you leave the gym, right? So if, if you uh, have pain after a technique, then that's really interesting because, you know, there's general soreness. And you should, you know, if you can't get up off the toilet because your quads are so sore, like celebrate that. But if your knee hurts or an insertion of your muscle hurts, that's different, right? And what we haven't done is, is help people understand that the same techniques about enhanced recovery are the same things we can do to, to accelerate healing or restore position. So what you pulled out of there was any notion that your range of motion was a component to that, right? So if you're missing internal rotation of your shoulder and your shoulder comes forward like a like you're a, a guy flexing his lats at the beach, we call it Delta Bravo shoulder, DB shoulder, right? Your shoulders are in front of your pecs when you do bicep curls. That's a really weird position and not a very effective position. <laughs> if you're overextending, you have a, you're doing pulls from the ground and you, you're getting a lot of weird motion in your spine during the pull. You know, that's just not good technique, right? And it doesn't mean you're going to get hurt, but it's weird that you got some information. Or if I, if I lay you down on the plinth and I bring your knee up, 
and it stops at 90 degrees, but you are pulling from a depth deeper than 90 degrees, I wonder why your hips are stiff, right? So what we've done is you've pulled out all of the range of motion markers, those movement vital signs out of there. And what you're saying is I'm going to continue to work because I've always got away with it instead of saying, here's what my body should be able to do. So with the low back, for example, people forget that your psoas is like your quads and your QL are like your hamstrings of your spine, your obliques, your abs, all of that matters, right? And changing that putting some input might make you feel better or break that tone or tell your brain it's not a threat, right? We forget that your stiff-ass quads pull on your pelvis and you can make your back feel better by, you know, going downstream and looking at mm. the forces pulling on your pelvis, right? So there's a, there's a ton of things you can do in 10 minutes. On the ready state, we've got low back, you know, fixes where you're just, hey, you just need some input into that spine. And it's interesting if we take the spine as a case study, I'm like, okay, have you, have you ever had stiff calves after running? People are like, oh yeah, for sure. I'm like, what'd you do? And like, I stretched, I mobilized, I foam rolled, I got a massage, I, you know, I did all these things. I'm like, okay, so when your abs were sore after an ab workout, what'd you do? And they're like, nothing. And I'm like, and when's the last time you treated the musculatures and soft tissue of your trunk the same way you did your hamstrings? And the answer is, Never. Mm -hmm. How about your biceps? When's the last time you did any biceps rolling or address the stiffness in your forearms? So what you're seeing is we have systems that haven't been touched in decades, but are really, really tolerant. And then all of a sudden you get a little, you're getting some feedback that something was strange. And remember the gym, we believe the gym is to be the safest place on the planet. That's the only place where I can control your warm up, control your cool down, control your loading, control your tempo, control your isometrics. I can control everything there. And so if you're telling me that you leave the gym feeling beat up, we need to talk about your practice in the gym, right? You should be feeling the best after that. You might be sore because muscles get sore and we tend to overdo it because of our egos. But start with what you can control. Control what you can control. And a lot of times these things are very, very low level, simple myofascial issues or stiffness or I restore motion. And I don't even have to – you know, I don't have to – become an expert in my body necessarily. But if you can't extend your hip, that's a problem. And it is affecting how you're moving and affecting tissue forces. So here's an example. I work with a lot of cyclists who get a little low back ache. And when what ends up happening is that they're all very stiff in the quads. They're very stiff in the front of the hip and they can't extend their legs. I don't mean extend the legs like I went from a squat stand up. I mean extend their hip like their knee mm -hmm. comes behind their glutes, like they're at the end of running. Because they're never in those positions, those tissues become stiff, pull on the spine. We restore that position mechanic, that native capacity to get into those shapes. And guess what? Their symptoms improve. And all we say is, hey, I don't know if this will improve your symptoms. But I noticed that when I push here, it hurts, so let's fix that. I noticed that your hips don't rotate. Let's improve that. And when we begin to just create a problem list and then start crossing things off the problem list, right? And sometimes it's as easy as this. Tell me about your back pain. Well, I just did this really high volume. We deadlifted 315 every 20 seconds for 30 minutes. Then what'd you do? I got in the car to pick up my kids. So you did all this crazy heavy pulling from the ground. You lifted 315 60 times and you got into the car and sat for an hour. Is that, is that how we would treat a racehorse? Right? You'll see that we make a, some of these basic adaptation errors all the time. That's part of being human. So let's just take a beat. 
and let's see if we can make ourselves feel better. Can we improve that? Are the, you know, so the first order of business is we say, hey, can you desensitize something? Second order of business, we're like, hey, can you decongest it? Is it just decongested? Will that be improved with movement like walking or blood flow restriction or or using voodoo bands, right? Or, you know, NMES style system or Compex boots or, or, or Normatec. And then on the third side, we say, hey, can I improve blood flow to this area, right? Because sometimes, you know, after long runs and competitions, we have our athletes come to the gym and do a little movement the next day. And some of that movement is just about putting blood flow and, and, and movement back into the system. And so suddenly, if you kind of attack that, desensitize, decongest, reperfuse, what you're going to see is that you're setting up yourself to de-stress de how your brain is thinking about those tissues because you're getting some information. But uh, if, you're, if your goal is to just ignore it, you know, take some ibuprofen, well, then I'll see you in the physio clinic. And everything you've just said there is bang on, right? I, I know, you know, some of those uh, uh, pain and examples I gave you I've, I've experienced some of those I know my wife has um but Me I know I, I, I know the reasons for those right yeah it's it's bad it's bad function in the gym I, I pushed myself too heavy uh you know with bad form as you say I probably didn't kind of mobilize much thereafter and I, I know the reasons why maybe some people don't but I would know the reasons why that this thing happened maybe that deadlift was just a bit funky that last rep just things went a bit off and I put too much too much strain on the back now the back's tweaked now and I'm on the floor rolling around. It's hurting. Now what do I do? Do I do I touch it when it's crazy? Yeah. Or do or, you leave well, it? You know. Man, and I think that's the point that, I'm trying yeah, to make no, is when it. do you go intervene? Upstream, go right away. Go upstream and go downstream of it. Right. The closer we can get, like the best physical therapy right now in the world is what we call trackside therapy, for lack of a better word. And where an athlete moves, we go make an adjustment. We change a tissue mechanic, and then they can move, move again. Right. And we're doing the same thing with you. When you're like, hey, I'm feeling a little stiff. I just got some information. I just ran a diagnostic tool, and now I'm going to minister to it. And sometimes you don't need to do anything, right? You know, if you do a good warm-up and your positions are good and you can do enough, you know, decongestion movement for the rest of the day, maybe you just downregulate and you do a little foam rolling so you fall asleep faster, right? Or or we know that you can enhance your recovery time by engaging in some kind of restorative behavior, like like rolling or jumping in the boots or putting on the the H wave or the Mark Pro, right? Doing a little Theragun in front of the TV. That's that sort of idea. We know as ways to speed up, or at least get your get your up to the speed where you can possibly you know manage your adaptation speed at your genetic level. Right. No one, no one is a super fast healer, but you either are moving or you're not moving. So, for example, you know, we use a lot of uh, at our highest levels. We use a, a device called the Mark Pro, which puts just a couple pads on your legs and creates a non-fatiguing muscle contraction that allows you to decongest without having to move. So it's basically movement without motion of the limb. Mm -hmm. And you can do that on an exercise bike. You can do that by walking. But our athletes get to save their energy, watch TV, and decongest their quadriceps. And lo and behold, they can do more work the next day. So, you know, what we what we need to do is people become very sophisticated around training splits and exercise selection, keto carnival and supplements, but they do not know what if they have full range of motion or not. 
I, and they don't know what to do about making themselves feel better. I totally, that's a, that's a, that's a totally agree. And I just want you to know that my questions are not coming from a place of challenging. They're absolutely not. They're coming from a place of curiosity that I suspect many of our listeners listeners have, which is, am am I am I injured and therefore I should have to, I should leave this alone because poking at this thing right now is going to do more harm than good, or do I need to intervene? And that, that I guess is the that's the challenge I'm, I'm putting at you. Is like, is there so, any so cases the when you shouldn't yeah, touch yeah. something? Yeah, if it's uh, you know, if you've got a bone sticking out of your leg, <laughs> you think you need to see a medical professional. You have night sweats, dizziness, fever, vomiting, nausea, unaccounted for weight loss, weight gain, right? Changing your bladder bowel function. You know, you, you, you sneeze and you poop yourself. Then go get some help, right? And what you should see is if I do a little mobilizing, did it make it worse? Then back off, right? You, those tissues are too sensitized. If I treated it some other way, remember, I don't just have a single foam roller as my technique. I have lots Great. of things I can do. If only there was a website that had, you know, had 4,000 videos and there, if there's only four books that kind of describe these <laughs> things, right? Thousands of, I mean, I don't know, maybe we're at 3,000 or 4,000 posts on Instagram now, you know, and uh, where we've really tried, if you're smart enough, you can go to our Instagram and never, ever pay for anything because if you can, you know, conceptualize the whole thing, you know, in, in little, little snippets, it's all there. But, you know, what, what we're saying is, you know, ultimately – if something's hurting, try to take a crack at making it feel better. If it doesn't feel better, we believe you, right? Maybe try a different technique. And if not, maybe you need to, you know, maybe go for a walk. Maybe let it ride. Go hit it tomorrow. Maybe go get some help. But the chances are you're smart enough to think this is making me feel better when I stop or it made me feel worse. And so if I have a super hot, pissed off tendon, do I go mobilize the tendon? Not necessarily, but maybe I decongest the tendon. Maybe I work upstream and see if I can feed that tendon some slack, right? Maybe I can work downstream. So oftentimes, for example, people will get a little hot ligament between their patella and the knee, right? So where the knee inserts. So we think of that as a tendon between your kneecap and your, and your shin, but that's technically a ligament because it goes from bone to bone. So, but my point is your shins, the front of your leg is directly attached to that thing via fascia, via connective tissue. And oftentimes you can make that ligament feel better, believe it or not, by working on your shins, not even your quads. And that shouldn't be a, a conceptual jump because those tissues are attached directly and connected. They're neighbors, right? That's an environment. That's a, that's a neighborhood. And so if it hurts to work on it and you can't bear on it, right, one of the things that we know is that normal tissues are painless to compression. You should be able to take a full breath while you're working on something. So if you can't take a full breath in and full breath out, you're working too deep. This is crucial, right? Right. Use your brain to give you feedback about your working. So if I'm working on something and I'm gritting my teeth and I can't breathe, I'm creating other problems and patterns in my brain and I'm telling my brain this is a threat, right? So make sure that you can breathe while you're doing that. And that might be really sensitive. But putting some input into that at that appropriate level where I can take a full breath, recognizing that if I push on something, it shouldn't hurt. Well, there's ways where I can desensitize and I can and protect myself and – also, you know, if you worked on something for five minutes and it's not feeling better, you've already worked it. Go on to something else. Mm, I love that, man. And listen, I've, I've gone through the Becoming the Supple Leopard. When I said I've read it back to back, uh, cover to cover, I absolutely <laughs> have. And I know it's quite an... <laughs> 
Wait till you see the next edition. It's, it's blow your mind. It's quite an encyclopedia of a book, right? I don't think many people have done what I've done, right? Which has gone, I'm going to go for it. I'm going to read it. And I'm going to do every single movement. <laughs> I just, I got obsessed for a couple of weeks. I kept disappearing into my little gym. And Michelle was like, where are you going? I've just got to try these little movements. I just wanted to understand so, what they were and how they worked. And I totally see what you're talking about, where you touch one muscle and it's, it's either bringing pressure, like it's bringing pressure into your kneecap because you're, you're working on your quad, for example. And you're like, yeah. oh, that's strange. Like, how's that happening? It's, it's amazing. And once you start to become your own body mechanic, you start working with your body, start realizing what does what. It's, it's fascinating and you feel enabled. But here's, here's the last question for you is, that book is quite dense. And that book is more, I, I feel it's more like... a a resource that you go to when you have a problem versus something you read back to back. How do, how do like, how does the average Joe deal with, you know, like building up their knowledge, like, because that book is great, but they're probably not going to do what I done. Where do they start? That's right. So the best thing you can do is when last September, we relaunched mobility wide into the ready state. And one of the things that we did is we built a two week on-ramp program. So it's free for two weeks. We'll give you a two-week trial. You can walk around the entire neighborhood, see what you think, try it out, try to adjust your pain. But in that two weeks, we have an on-ramp program where we'll teach you the basics of how to take care of your body. And so you can just get a little email a day, do some micro-learning. We'll teach you the techniques. Don't need any equipment. Then you get some equipment. Then we, And what we realize is that people just haven't been taught. Right. So it's not their fault. They don't know what to do. They've never, ever had this experience before. And, you know, a lot of people have never rolled before. They're shocked when someone pushes on their hamstrings or their quads mm-hmm. and they, it's painful. Like, what are you doing? You know? And so one of the things that we've done again through the site is through this, this trial is that it's easy for you to go ahead and jump in for free for a couple of weeks and we'll teach you the basics on how your body works. And what we found was that's a great way to level everyone up. And then, again, we've organized this thing with – you can search our encyclopedia of 3,000-plus videos in the archive. You can downregulate and do some daily maintenance videos. You can desensitize and work in the pain section. Or you can mobilize to improve position. Or, or you know, So you can search by a body part. You can search by a movement. You can search by a sport. And we've, we've created some playlist ideas for you to improve your position so that suddenly position is part of the conversation. And so we'll, we'll meet you where you need to be met inside the ready state. And it's, uh, it's really an incredible resource. And I think simplifies exactly what you're talking about. We need to you know, also have to make it easier for people because you – know, supple leopard is dense and the next next edition will be denser Mm. and that sounds like a fantastic resource i would guess and tell me if i'm wrong that people come to you when they have a problem and they're probably they they probably don't come to you proactively going you know what i feel fit and healthy but i should really invest in this mobility stuff like how do we break that well some of our you know what we what we do is continue the message that your position matters right that that if sleep, if nutrition, if tribe, right, if, if, if stress, if those are the exercise, those are the foundations of being human, your ability to move through the environment is the, is the next foundation. So we call it the fifth pillar. It's not exercise, but it's mobility. It's your 
excuse me, it's your ability to be able to move and interact with your environment. Mm. And we haven't ever said that's important. And yet we know that if you can't get up and down off the ground without your hands, you're more likely to die early, right? You, you know, we're seeing is it's not just about strength. It's about ability to express that strength through range of motion. And so, um, on the one hand, you know, we just have to continue to send the message that, Hey, you can do this. And this isn't a medical problem. This is a human problem. Cause so let's look at nutrition. Let's apply the same thinking. So you're like, how do people know? I'm like, I don't know. How do we teach people how to eat vegetables? You know, how do we teach people to eat diverse proteins? How do we teach people to sleep? We're going to have to do the same thing a little bit at a time. We have basically human beings that are highly unskilled by no fault of their own who suddenly now have an opportunity to become a little bit more skilled in the ways. And eventually we'll get it. We'll, we'll capture everyone. You know, people will know. And what, one of the things that we find is that we have one person who's a super user and they solve all the problems in their local community because they're the node of, of knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right. I think you're right. I, I, I trust you that you'll put, you'll put this on the map. I think you've already done a fantastic job of uh, introducing these concepts to lots of people via, you know, the CrossFit community and now wider. So you're doing a great job. And I think, you know, people in the know know. It's the people that don't know that need to, you need to be enlightened that, you know, I know, I know many people that will say to me, I just don't have the mobility. I don't have the yeah. mobility in my shoulders. I, you know, I can't squat, you know, I've had surgery, I've this, then I've, I can't move. And therefore um, it's, 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 it's because it's painful for me to move, I mustn't move. And then they restrict and restrict and restrict and become right. more and more That's sedentary. Right. They lose more and more range of motion. Only, wow, how amazing would it feel for them if they can get introduced to the fact, actually, we can return your full range of motion. You've got to take some ownership, though. You've got to get educated. You've got to start moving around. So I, I think that's that's the path you're on. I'm very excited for you on uh, trying to crack that nut because it's, yeah, well, it's incredible how it's incredible it how um, simple this is. I move in, and yet how little we know, you know, from from one person to the next, that these things are important. Yeah, and and shame on us. You know, where, where should we learn this? You know, we start very early. You know, we need we need to change culture. And you know, in the UK, there's something called the Daily Mile, in a lot of schools where kids just go walk a mile. That's it. Just during the day, they can run, they can walk, they can skip. They just walk a mile during the day. It takes about 15 to 20 minutes. And, um, you know, by programming in and making it normal that human beings go and move their bodies during the day, these kids will learn it. They're like, oh, I've been walking a mile every day since, you know, since primary school. And I think that's how we think about these things. We, cool. we just start earlier and we've got time. You know, you're, we say one of our fond statements is muscles and tissues are like obedient dogs. And they are. And at no point do you stop healing. At no point can you not learn a new skill. At no point can you change, not change a, a behavior of eating or sleeping. And the body is seeking homeostasis. It's like when we pull the blanket off, whew, the fire catches again. And um, that's exactly how your body is. You, you give a little, little feed, a little watering, a little, little love, and you're shocked at how much better you can feel. How do we know? We've been doing this for 15 years. You know, we've owned a gym for 15 years and, uh, you know, we, we're not just users. I mean, we, we talk about it. We are users. We, we work with average people. We work with Olympians. We work with kids. You know, what we see is that there is possibility for this. Uh, there's a local high school, um, that uses our book as a course 
and teaches them health how to do basic maintenance. So they have every freshman and sophomore through this high school comes through and they all understand how to downregulate, how to make themselves feel better, how to how to put out flames, how to how to know if they have sort of hitting their movement movement minimums the same way we teach them about sleep or sex or drugs. Mm. And and I'm trying to be that node for my daughters. You know, I've got two two daughters too. And, you know, one of them's a fantastic swimmer. The other one's a, a hypermobile gymnast. And, you know, they're both getting caught up with little aches and pains. And I've yeah. I've been educated enough by you. And, you know, I've bought many of the tools. And, you know, I've got a few things that I can, you know, throw at them that just takes away, you know, the edge and, and gives, them, gives them things that they can do on their own right. And then, you know, you go to go to galas and you've seen all these kids foam rolling and, you know, doing all these stretches and movements. You think, you know what? It is catching on. It is it's catching, catching on, on with the younger generations. It is. And, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing that the kids know what, what makes them feel better. And so I'm like, Oh, you don't, don't believe me. Believe the kids because mm-hmm. kids won't do something, you know, that, you know, kids will not eat a bucket full of kale because they think it's good for them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. It's so, so, true, man. so, you know, they'll eat the kale because the kale made them feel better so they could do their sport. And that's the context. The whole thing is pain is this low bar. It's about so that I can go move and experience. And our bodies, let me just finish by saying, our bodies are so robust. They're so anti-fragile. They are so strong and they're designed easily to last a hundred years. You got this, but you know, it's it, the, the conversations we're having are so remedial and you're not you're not really taking advantage of the fact that your human self is really extraordinary and is built to be used and 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 abused. Beautiful clothes, beautiful clothes, man. It's been a true pleasure, Kelly. It really has, man. I know you've mentioned a couple of things throughout in terms of you know your resources, but let's just wrap a bow on this by uh, giving people those URLs and uh, tags again to find you online. Well, we are at the ready state on Instagram and the socials and the YouTube, and then go to the ready and you'll see that you can drop right in. And, uh, there's a free trial there. We're not, we're not trying to trick you. We're trying to empower you and try to be a resource. And one of the things I just want people to recognize is that we're agnostic about the way you train. If you, because there's all these movements have such similarities, right? just different, different styles. If you speak Pilates, you speak yoga, you're a runner, right? You're a power lifter, you're an Olympic lifter, you know, notice that we really trust that you know how to move your body. We're not trying to give you an exercise prescription. Mm. We're trying to say, here's how you can restore and make yourself feel better. Awesome, man. I'll make sure I'll put links to um, those social tags as well as your website. And I'll also put links to your, is it four books? Four books. Soon to be That's five. It. I think we will technically, I think we have five releases oh. with the second edition of Supple Leopard, but you know, who's counting, you know, these things. <laughs> I wish you all the best in the future. Thank you for giving us such a, uh, an education and lots of your time today. Um, this is going to come up in a few weeks time. I'll share you all the details once it's made available, but honestly, true pleasure. And, uh, just keep doing what you do, man. All right. We'll see you soon. Cheers. Take care, fella. Damn, I love that conversation. Kelly is the bomb. He is absolutely amazing when it comes to anything and everything mobilization. Hopefully you got that message loud and clear. And do make sure you check out The Ready State. His resources on his YouTube channel alone are incredible. And if you like this discussion and you want to dig a little deeper, then let me recommend you something. 
I have spent the last couple of years both interviewing people and doing tons of research to codify my understanding of what it takes to be your best, to live your best life and have the most energy, vitality. And nutrition, of course, plays a significant part, but so does appropriate rest and calmness. So does exercise. So does mindset, life habits, your physique. All these things absolutely matter, but trying to piece this all together for yourself can take a hell of a lot of time. There's so much confusion. There's so much misinformation. It is a bit of a maze. So if you want to get a fast track view into what it takes to be your best, I would highly recommend that you check out the Be Your Best journey. I'll put a link in the show notes. It is something that I've labored over. I believe it is truly of value to most people, whether you are already optimizing your life or need that reboot. It starts slow and it builds over a course of 100 days. I'm incredibly proud of it. The feedback has been phenomenal so far and I hope you enjoy it. So if you want a guided tour of everything that I've learned and everything that we stand for at Adaptation, the Be Your Best journey is absolutely something that I think can help. So go check it out. Let me know what you think. And until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best.